will be in Luke chapter 9 this morning. Luke, the ninth chapter. Thank you for being here on this Sunday morning. I am so thankful for this place where we can gather together. I'm thankful for my church family. And it's good to be with you in God's house this morning. As you're opening your Bible to Luke chapter 9, I want to share a photograph with you. It's a picture that I recently snapped at home. I was communicating with evangelist Matt Galvin, who's been with us a couple of times. And he commented in our texting back and forth. He and his wife have two children now and are expecting again. And he said something in the text about how there's something about one to two children that the parenting stress level just shoots through the roof and something they never could have expected or imagined. And it was while I was sitting at my table, as you see in the picture, and I'm studying, I'm working, and three of my children are doing school, and our youngest was there. I have no idea where Adeline was at the time. And I think Stephanie was out of the house for an appointment at that point. And so we're sitting there, and I, I, he said something about that parenting stress level, and I snapped a picture, and I said, well, here's my view as I'm sitting trying to study. And we went back and forth a little about that. But it can be interesting. It can be fun to try to keep our oldest three Brooklyn, who's now in fourth grade, and Evelyn, who's in second, and Michael, who is in kindergarten. It can be fun to keep them focused on their schoolwork while they're sitting around the table together, while there are other things they can be looking at. Michael, in his first days of kindergarten, we've experienced, you know, he thinks he's got to touch the iPad, and then he messes the video up, or he has a 20-minute video, and somehow it's over in three minutes, and we understand, like, that doesn't even make sense. Or the other day, it was a group of pencils and pens. His teacher is teaching, and Michael has pencils and pens going, and then we do a little different. Since Monday is my off day, we do school Tuesday to Saturday with the kids so we can all have Monday off together. And at one point yesterday, Adeline came to Michael holding a book. And Michael's teacher's teaching that, and Michael's going, oh, and the lion says this, you know, talking to Adeline. Distracted. Big time. And it can be fun to to keep them focused. You know, between requests for they just had breakfast 30 minutes ago, but they're hungry and need food. Or they've been working at school for 45 minutes and they need a break. Or, you know, there's some activity outside going on that they're paying attention to through the window. Or there's something going on inside that... It is distracting. The distractions abound and distract them from where their focus should be at that moment on their schoolwork. We read a verse earlier in the service that 
relates to the passage we're going to look at in Luke today. And I want to read it again for you. It'll be up there on the screen. It's a verse that's been a lot on my mind as I've meditated and studied for our passage in Luke. But Paul wrote this in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. He said, No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life. Contextually, Paul is writing to his son Timothy, his son in the faith, and he's sharing wisdom that is for Timothy personally, but it's also for others whom he will teach. Because he says, even in that passage, you endure hardness, but he says, these things that I'm telling you commit to faithful men. Share these things with others who are faithful and will be faithful. For Timothy, as a leader in the church, he needed to protect himself from entanglements in the world. Some have taken this to an unbiblical extreme and used it to teach that church leaders, elders, pastors, should practice celibacy. That is one of the verses used in groups or in denominations that teach and believe that. While some have taken it to that kind of an extreme, unbiblical end of the spectrum... The reality is that others haven't practiced it enough. And transparently, I'm convicted by this verse. As a pastor of a church, as a church leader, I've had to question this week as I've thought about it. It's been heavy on my mind. How often do entanglements affect my ministry in service to Jesus? Or maybe asked Rather this way, how many entanglements of this world are holding me back? Isn't that what Paul told Timothy? No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life. And then, admittedly to a different extent... Entanglements can and likely do affect all of us and our ministries and service to Jesus. Again, to a different extent, I, I'm not one who believes that all of us are called to a full-time vocational life of ministry and service, such as a pastor or a missionary, etc., but would you agree that all of us are called to minister to and serve Jesus? We all should. And for any of us, we can become so encumbered with 
the affairs of this life that we are easily distracted from ministering to and serving Jesus. As we go to Luke chapter number 9, we find Jesus giving his disciples four things. And within these four things, we'll see that he wraps up this idea of no entanglements. And I want you to understand as we look at Luke 9, 1 through 9, that this passage is descriptive, not prescriptive. You say, Pastor, what do you mean by that? One of the dangers that we can have in Bible interpretation or in just sitting and reading the Bible for ourselves is to think that everything the Bible says is directed to us in the sense that this is something you need to do in your life. But that's not always the case. Sometimes there are passages of Scripture that are simply telling us what happened. And it's not, hey, you need to do something with this. It's this is what happened in that person's life. And there are still things we can learn from it. But it's not prescriptive. You need to do this. And that is true here. Jesus, as he gives these disciples four things, there are going to be some commands that he gives to them that are not equally applicable to you and I today. Yet, we can and should learn from them. And I make that clear as we go along. If you would, let's read the passage together, and then we'll examine the four things that Jesus gave his disciples. Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Then he called his twelve disciples together. Okay, so remember, Jesus has more than 12 disciples. These are the 12 he has specifically set apart that he will name his apostles. The Bible says, And he gave them power and authority over all devils and to cure diseases. And he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And he said unto them, Take nothing for your journey, Neither staves, nor scrip, nor bread, neither money, neither have two coats apiece. And whatsoever house ye enter into, there abide, and thence depart. And whosoever will not receive you when ye go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet for a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the towns, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was done by him, and he was perplexed because that it was said of some that John was risen from the dead, and of some that Elias had appeared, and of others that one of the old prophets was risen again. And Herod said, John have I beheaded, but who is this, of whom I hear such things? And he desired to see him. Can we pause and pray, and then we'll continue this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and your truth. How it convicts and challenges and also comforts our hearts and lives. Thank you for the peace that we can have, as the ladies sang about a little while ago. And now as we come to the word of God, I pray that you would continue to open our eyes that we may see Jesus. Please help us even now to set aside distractions. 
and be able to focus on what you have for us. Fill me with your spirit. I, I desperately need you. And I pray that you would help as the word of God is preached, that it would minister to our hearts. And we'll be sure to praise and thank you for it. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So, four things that Jesus gave his disciples. What are these four things that we find in this passage? I want you to see, number one, that Jesus gave them prayer. You say, Pastor, I don't see that in the text, and you're correct. I want you to go with me to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. Pastor, if it's not there in the text of Luke chapter 9, then, then why share it with us? Because we need to study and we need to hear from the Word of God expositionally. As I'm preaching through the gospel according to Luke for, and have for over eight months now, and will be for a while longer, I'm preaching positionally verse by verse and one of the one of the crucial components of that is preaching in context and when you're dealing with the gospels you understand that there is harmony between the gospels what luke covers in these nine verses and mark does about the same matthew contributes 46 verses to this context and that context is found at the end of Matthew chapter 9 all the way through chapter 10 and into Matthew chapter 11 and verse 1. So yes, we don't see this particular point in Luke, but it is within the context of Luke 9. So you're in Matthew chapter 9. This is a familiar passage of Scripture, but if you would look with me at verses 35 through 38 of Matthew chapter 9. The Bible says, And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them, because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Then saith he unto his disciples, the harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. Jesus was moved with compassion because of the needs of the people around him, told his disciples to pray to the Lord that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. This is such a crucial point in Jesus' ministry and a crucial understanding of his ministry because it's been pointed out by many that this is the one prayer request that Jesus commanded his disciples to pray. Of course, when they asked him, Lord, teach us to pray, he gave them that model prayer of, of Matthew chapter 6. But here he is, he's ministering, he's teaching, and he turns to his disciples and he commands them. This is in the imperative tense. You pray to the Father 
that he'll send laborers into his harvest. Let's begin with this simple application. How regularly do you pray that God would send forth laborers? If you have an active prayer life, we know, of course, that God invites us to bring every care and concern of our hearts to Him. Every need. Anytime we need mercy and grace, come. God is available for us as we come before the throne of grace to seek mercy and help in time of need. But he has commanded us. Yes, us. This is not the part of the passage that is simply descriptive. This is prescriptive for you and I. He has commanded us to pray to God that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. How regularly is that prayer request a part of your prayer life? Tony Evans, the pastor, described Jesus' command by saying, Jesus called his disciples, including us, to pray for the recruitment of kingdom-minded workers. Is this a regular part of your prayers? Charles Spurgeon commented, He did not say, Jesus that is, the harvest truly is plenteous and the laborers are few, but that matters not. God can bless a few and make them accomplish as much as many. That's not how Jesus said to pray. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus didn't look around him and say, you know what? The harvest is plenteous, but God doesn't need a lot of workers to meet the need. Now, can God do that? Yes, he can. But, but Jesus didn't point to that. He said, you pray that God will send forth laborers. Pray that God will move people to get out there into the harvest and do the work. Spurgeon went on to say, Jesus believed in his father's omnipotence, but he also believed that the Lord would work by means and that many laborers were required to gather in a plenteous harvest, and therefore he told us to pray for them. And so let us pray for God to send more kingdom-minded workers out into his harvest. Now here's a question, though, further. If we pray for that, what are we praying for in that prayer? Pastor, we're praying for, for workers, for the harvest. Yes, but I want you to understand that there's, a, there's an emphasis in the Greek language that, that just possibly cannot completely come through in our English nation. There's no way to, to do it. The language is very forcible. As if we are praying that God would push them forward. That God would thrust them out. Jesus 
is telling us you pray to God in such a way that God will force laborers, he will thrust, he will, he will push them out into his harvest. This isn't secondary for Jesus. This is primary. What I mean by that is this prayer request, the only one he commands us to pray, is something that is so important. It's not just, hey, you know what, if you think about it, if you get around to it, you should pray this way. This is, this is primary to Jesus. It is essential to Jesus. That's why he uses such forceful language. And so I want to take the application a step further and not just ask, is this something you regularly pray? But is it something you pray for forcefully? This is why in speaks of the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. I wonder how many times we come to God so casually, so disinterestedly, that we're saying words and we're giving him some time, but it's really not as essential. It's really not as primary. It's not as much priority. It's not as, as diligent as what it should be. Jesus describes this as something we should pray and something that should be an area where fervent, effectual prayer is practiced and so do not, do not see this as simply descriptive. It's a prayer for us, a prayer we should pray. And so he gave them prayer. Number two, I want you to see this, and we'll be back in Luke chapter 9. He gave them power. He gave them power. Look back at verse 1. He called the 12 disciples together and gave them power and authority over all devils and to cure diseases. He gave them power. And it shows up in two ways. The words in our text, power and authority, which are two distinct words. The power, the word power, comes from the word regularly used in the Bible to describe divine power. Write down some of these thoughts and references. The Bible reveals of this power that it is the power that belongs to God. Matthew chapter 6 verse 13. Do you remember in the Lord's Prayer? Jesus concluded that prayer by saying, For thine is the kingdom and the what? Power. Dunamis is the word. This is the power the Bible reveals belongs to God. It's the power used to describe miracles. There's not a reference. I mean, throughout the New Testament, you find this. When the Bible says things like, He did many mighty works among them. Mighty works is this word, dunamis, translated that way. Uh, when, when the Bible speaks of signs and wonders, often this word dunamis is going to be involved 
in those passages. Often when the Bible just speaks of the power of Jesus, it's this word dunamis. So it is this power of God that is used to describe miracles. In Matthew 24, verse 30, it's the power that Jesus will return to earth with. The Bible says he will return to the earth. And remember, we're not talking about the rapture when we speak of the return of Christ. We're talking about that time at the end of the tribulation when he will literally return to the world. His feet will touch on the Mount of Olives, which will be split in two. He will defeat all of his enemies and set up his kingdom. The Bible says at that time, he will come from heaven with glory and great power. Dunamis. But then, here's what's so incredible. So it's the power that belongs to God. It's the power used to describe the working of miracles. It's the power that Jesus returns to earth with when he comes back. But do you know that same word is used to describe what God provides to us to enable us for his service for him? Matthew 25 15 do you remember the parable of the talents the Bible tells us that that the master distributed to every man according to his several ability but here's the thing that word ability is translated from this same word dunamis so the power that belongs to God that is used to describe the working of miracles The power that Jesus is going to return with is the same power that he gives to his followers to enable them to serve and minister to him. It's the power that comes to us when the Holy Spirit lives in and fills us. Acts chapter 1 verse 8. But ye shall receive dunamis. The power that belongs to God that describes the working of miracles that describes how Jesus will return to the earth. He's going to give you power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you. And if that wasn't enough, it's the power inherent in the gospel, Romans 1.16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the dunamis, the power of God. So get this. He gives them power. That power that belongs to God, that's used to describe of miracles, that he will return to the earth with, he gives his followers that power, enabling them to go out and do what he desires them to do, what he wants them to do, so they can minister to and for him. He gives it to them, but he's already packed that power into the gospel. So let's pause for just a moment and think about this. Did Jesus fail to give them anything that they needed? No. He said, go out and preach the kingdom of God. Hey, by the way, I'm going to give you power to do this. And there's already that same power in the message. The power of God. How about us? Do you think he's failed to give us anything we needed? That we need? Because we have the same power available to us, don't we? But not only that, he he provided authority. It's a distinct word. 
This word authority identifies the ideas of privilege, force, capacity, competency, uh, freedom, or the idea of mastery in the sense of being able to, to master over something or to master something. It has the idea of a delegated influence. In other words, you have derived authority from an authority who's able to give authority. It regularly speaks of authority in the way that it does here. In other words, when you read this word throughout the New Testament, often it's used in the same way it is here. How is it used here? Look at it. He gave them authority over all devils and to cure diseases. So Jesus delegated authority to the disciples over spiritual and physical forces. And this is exactly what Jesus claimed for himself when he commissioned his disciples before sending them here and before he ascended to heaven. Do you remember that? Matthew chapter 28. Before he said, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel, right before that, what did he say? All power. There the word isn't dunamis. It's this word, exousia, which speaks of authority. Jesus says, all power, all authority is given to me both in heaven and in earth. In other words, Jesus is saying, I have all authority. All authority over everything, over everyone, over every spiritual force, over every physical force. And by the way, he's demonstrated that, hasn't he? Do you remember some of what has gone on leading up to this passage? Go back to Luke chapter 7 and 8. Luke chapter 7, he heals the centurion servant without even being there. Luke chapter 8, he, uh, Luke chapter 7, excuse me, still, he, he raises the widow's son to life. Luke chapter 8, he heals the madman of Gadara after the Bible tells us that there are several women following him whom he's cast devils out of. He, he calms the storm on the sea. He has authority over all these things. And right here, he looks the disciples in the eyes and says, I am giving you that authority. That same power and authority you've seen me demonstrate, I am giving it to you for this time, for this mission, for us today. We operate the same way that Jesus wanted the disciples to hear. We operate under his authority. Yes, we have the same authority when we minister to and for him. Jesus gave his disciples a task and he gave them the power to perform that task and friend, listen to me carefully, he will do the same for you. He'll do the same for you. Do you ever feel unqualified? Do you ever feel unable? Do you ever feel like you aren't enough, that you don't have enough of what it takes? If God calls you or gives you a task or a mission to accomplish, he will also, with the task or the mission, give you the power you need to do it. He gave them power. He gave them prayer. Notice thirdly, he gave them a purpose. 
In verses 1 and 2, we see this. Verse 1 begins with this, and, or excuse me, then he called his disciples. Can, can we agree that God never calls without a reason? Would you agree with that simple statement? God doesn't call out to us. He doesn't call out to you or to me individually without a reason, without a purpose. Well, what was that purpose here in the context? Verse number two, here was the purpose. And he sent them to preach. This is a unique time in Jesus's ministry. Throughout his ministry, we are so used to seeing Jesus have his disciples where? I mean, right with him, right? They're there when he's working miracles. They're there when he's preaching and teaching. They are right there with him. But this is a unique time. Jesus calls them, and Luke here, he calls the, nine, the, the 12. If you go back to Matthew chapter 10, again, it's the same context. It's not a different time. The Bible tells us he, he's called 70 to himself to send them out like this. Luke is focusing on the 12. But, but the idea here is that he gives them this purpose and this task. They're going to go out from him. By the way, in groups of two. Why so often when we do evangelism in the area, is it in groups of two? Well, it's just following this example. He sends them in groups of two to go out and to preach the kingdom of God. It was the purpose for the prayer and the power. Why did he give them the prayer? Pray that the Lord will send forth laborers into his harvest. Why did he give them the power he gave them? Was it to go out and do magic tricks? Was it to go out and bless themselves? Was it to go out and, and just put on a show? No, he gave them what he gave them for the purpose of going out and preaching the kingdom of God. And so let's take a step back for a moment. It's ironic, isn't it? Given the prayer of Matthew 9 that Jesus now sends them, I think about it. Matthew chapter 9, pray that the Lord of the harvest will send forth laborers into har his harvest. And you go into Matthew chapter 10, he calls them to himself, and what's he say? Go. I've told you to pray that God would send laborers out into his harvest. Now I'm telling you, you go out into the harvest. One teacher, pastor said it this way, this is a prayer we must pray but we can only pray it honestly if open to hearing him tell us, you go into the harvest. Did you catch that? I'm in complete agreement. It's a prayer we can only pray honestly if we are willing and with an ear open to God, letting him tell us, you go. You go do it. You go labor in my harvest. Hey, can I ask you? I know it's true for me. Even as a full-time vocational pastor. Are you pretty good at handling your own harvest? 
And pastor, what do you mean by that? Are you faithful, committed to taking care of the needs of your life, the needs of your family, working the job, paying the bills, maybe setting a little aside for a rainy day or for retirement, taking care of those needs, taking care of even some of the wants? All of those things are things, by the way, I believe we should do if we're faithfully obedient to God. But my point is this. Are we saving any time? Are we saving any effort and energy for his harvest? Are we even open to that? If you pray this prayer with open ears, God may very well send you, just as he did his disciples. He gave them the purpose... And by the way, he gave them the way to accomplish the purpose. Where did they preach? Did you catch it? In verse number 6, And they departed and went through the towns, preaching the kingdom, the gospel, and healing where? Everywhere. Hey, did they leave anyone or any place out? No. I mean, put this in in the idea of the culture. Put it in the idea of the context. For the disciples, where were they preaching? They were preaching on the street corners. They were preaching in the marketplaces. They were preaching in the synagogues. I remember when I was a... uh, when I was a college student and I was an intern at a local church there in Pensacola and myself and one of the seminary seminarian students who was also interning at that church, we were on our way back and we passed a, a mosque where there were a lot of people gathered and I said, hey, maybe we should just pull off and walk in there and start preaching. And he was like, no, nah, I don't think that's a good idea. I mean, they, you know, I don't know about that. Paul walked into the Jewish synagogues and just started preaching Jesus. I mean, they went to the synagogues. They they preached to small groups. They preached to large groups. And they even preached one-on-one. At any place, any time, to any person, they preached the gospel. What about us? Go ye therefore into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And by the way, would you notice this? This thought will give you something to wrap your mind around. Jesus didn't attempt to do everything, did he? He gave them a work to do. He used the resources available. What about us? Answer some questions for yourself today. Is there somewhere you won't go? Is there someone you won't preach to? Is there something you and I will or won't use for preaching the gospel? resources available to us are different than the resources available to them, right? We have an internet stream. 
here at the church. We have World Wide Web. We can get a message out to anyone all over the world. Early this year, we took on an, a digital evangelist for support. Who would have ever thought you'd heard the term digital evangelist even five years ago? Ten years ago? I, I mean, for some of us, this is like crazy out there, right? Someone who gets on and makes videos and just puts them on social media services? Is there anything hindering any of us from sharing the gospel on a social media platform? I've shared with you before previously, I share it with you again. There's a pastor that I regularly listen to is preaching, and he shares that the philosophy at their church is we will do anything short of sin to share the gospel and bring people to a saving knowledge of Christ. What about us? What about us here right now? He gave them a purpose. Pastor, you said it was descriptive. Yeah, but I mean, there's so much here for us too, isn't there? And then notice, if you will, number four. He gave them a pronouncement. How did Jesus expect them to fulfill purpose for which he gave them power in prayer? Notice in Luke's gospel, he says, and I'm going to give you the, 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 the definitions, not the way it's recorded for us in our King James, but he told them to go without a walking stick. That's what a, a stave is. To go without a wallet. That's what script is. He told them to go without taking a, a truckload of food with them along the way. He told them to go without money. He told them to go without an extra set of clothing. Don't even bother taking a second set of clothes. Just take what you're wearing. He told them to go without a reservation. Hey, don't, don't worry about where you're going to stay when you get to a town. And even once you're there and you've found somewhere to stay, don't move places once you realize, oh, so-and-so is going to give me an upgrade. No, just stay put. Hey, by the way, if you go back to Matthew's gospel, remember how I said Luke shares in nine verses what Matthew contributes 46? You go to Matthew's gospel, and there's a lot more there that Jesus gave to them about how to do this. Mostly, don't take this and don't take that. And as you go, do it this way and do it that way. There's a lot more there. And this is where it is especially descriptive. In other words, this is not what Jesus necessarily expects of each and every one of us. However, there's a point. Why did Jesus tell his followers this for that time? In my estimation, Jesus was getting at two things. Number one, he wanted them to depend completely on the Father. 
I've given you prayer. I've given you power. I've given you a purpose. Now, I want you to go out with this heart attitude of depending completely on God. We sing the song from time to time, you are my all in all. We say amen when someone says, Jesus is all you need. Right? How many, how many of us really know what that actually is? I don't know that I could say I do. How many of us actually know what it is to depend completely on God to that type of extent? And that's what Jesus was driving home. I, I want you to take none of these things. Jesus, you don't even want us to have a change of clothes. Jesus, you don't want us to take money and no food. So how are we going to eat today as we travel? When we get somewhere, how are we going to find a place to stay and someone to feed us? And, and so we can go out and do these things. How often do we think today, I need to have all these things. And then I can get out there and serve God effectively. And Jesus told them, take none of those things. I've already given you what you need different way of thinking isn't it than we often do today and then I think there's a second point not only depend completely on God but the second point goes all the way back to where we started no entanglement no distractions I don't know about you, but my mind says it would be awfully distracting to get out on the road knowing this is the only set of clothes I have, knowing I have no money and no food, where am I going to eat lunch and dinner, knowing I don't have a place to stay when I get to my, where I'm going. To me, that would be distracting. But Jesus tells them, no, you, you'll learn to depend on the Father because he's going to take care of all those things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Don't seek after those things the way the Gentiles seek, because your father knoweth that ye have need of these things. So can you imagine this for the disciples? To go without any guarantees... And that's essentially what Jesus said. So dependence on God would be needed. And this is also going to cause them to avoid entanglements. Their focus would solely be the purpose he gave them. That's where their focus would be. Now again, listen to me, hear me. This isn't prescriptive. Jesus doesn't say to you and to me, if you're going to follow me, this is how it's going to have to happen. Don't carry a wallet. Never have money. Don't have more than one change of clothes, etc. It's not prescriptive in that way. However, wouldn't you agree that the attitude and the actions needed to enact these commands should be practiced by all of us today? to depend completely on God and 
to not be so encumbered with the affairs of this life that ministry and service to Jesus is an afterthought is so far behind everything else is not even a priority it's not even a part of who we are it's not even a part of our thinking or our our daily routine and behavior I would say that those things should be true for you and I. Wouldn't you agree that we should still depend on God? That we should still avoid entanglements that will cause us to deprioritize God's call in our lives and the purpose he's given us? Certainly we should. So, for you, this was convicting to me, your pastor. Maybe for others of us today, we're convicted because he's given us prayer just like he gave them. He's given us power just like he gave them. He's given us a purpose just like he's given them. And he's given us a pronouncement like he gave them. We'll see it shortly. Later on in Luke chapter 9, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And to do anything less, Jesus says, means you're what? Not worthy to be his disciple.